Welcome to Series 2 of Finding Home, a podcast series about the history of the Irish in Cleveland. This podcast is presented by the Irish American Archive Society of Cleveland, Ohio. Series 2 features interviews of Clevelanders talking about an array of topics relating to the history of the Irish in our city. Please excuse any variation in audio quality as these interviews have been conducted over the phone and over Zoom. Support for Series 2 of Finding Home comes from the Michael Talty and Helen Talty Charitable Trust. Thanks so much for listening, and please enjoy. Greetings, everyone. I'm Margaret Lynch, Executive Director of the Irish American Archive Society of Cleveland. Welcome to our podcast series, Finding Home. Today I have with me on the podcast Tom Corgan. He's the president of the Board of Trustees of the Irish American Archive Society with lots of stories to tell, but today I've asked him to reflect a little bit about the connections between some research he did on the role of Irish in boxing and his own young days as a participant in Catholic youth organization activities. Welcome, Tom. Thanks, Margaret. Glad to be here, particularly since you did such an excellent podcast with Kevin O'Toole on some more of the detail about Johnny Kilbane. I kind of wanted the chance to put Johnny Kilbane in the Cleveland community in the context of what Irish sports and boxing were in the early part throughout the 20th century. And um, as you know, I had the opportunity to represent the Irish American Archives Society of Cleveland at the Friendly St. Patrick to talk to them about Irish boxing. Uh, uh, that's in New York. That's an organization, very ancient organization in New York City. It's the third oldest Irish organization in the country. Mm-hmm. And uh, 200 guys in black tie, uh, to give you mm-hmm. some idea. Of- and this was during the time period when we were working on the uh, Johnny Kilbane Sculpture Project, which um, we launched in 2012 and brought to completion in 2014. And you were also invited to talk at the Cleveland Museum of Art during that time period and sort of focused on the similar sort of topic, but which is a doctoral dissertation, but we'll try to zero in on a few of the uh, characters who uh, sort of shaped Johnny Kilbane's landscape when he was coming up. And Tom Sharkey was one of those. That's correct. And in fact, the big picture to get, and, uh, well, touch on my very short career as a boxer myself back in. Oh, oh good. I look forward to that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the reality is, and, and most of us in this day and age with NBA and NFL and NCAA Final Four and all those things that dominate the sports attendance, sports TV focus of, of the larger community, uh, you have to remind yourself that back in the late 19th and early 20th century, there were three big attendance sports. Baseball, which was already rolling well by the 1890s, the Cleveland Spiders, as the original team was called. And those were big attendance community activities and sports. Uh, Horse racing had literally tens of thousands of people a week at tracks all over the country. Horse racing was a big attendance sport. And then finally, boxing. And people forget how significant boxing was as a part of the culture at large, particularly for the ordinary Joe and Jane uh, on the streets. Mm-hmm. They weren't going to polo matches or, or things like that. And basically, boxing was just about as big a popular sport and with heroes and daily commentaries. And if you go to the Plain Dealer, the Cleveland News, the, the Cleveland Press back in the early part of the 20th century, the sports page is dominated by baseball, boxing, and horse racing. 
I remember seeing a um, cartoon in The Plain Dealer while doing research about Johnny Kilbane, and picture had the legend, boxing is king. That's correct. And the, yeah. the other thing to remember, too, is that what a large role Irish Americans played in that whole development. Right. The first great national sports hero in any sport really was John L. Sullivan. Before that, it was Paul Bunyan myths and and uh, those sorts of things. And if you're talking about a sport that was organized or regulated, however you want to think about it, as, as something that's defined, John L. Sullivan and his immediate successor, gentleman Jim Corbett, they're the people who both popularized and professionalized the game of, of boxing. And when I say professionalized, you know, betting on Barroom brawls had been going on for, you know, I mean, if you go back to Mayo, you can find betting on barroom brawls or pub brawls, if you will, well into the 17th century, I think. But basically, the idea that there'd be rules and, and referees and, and those sort of things really was and a rounds, rounds, rounds and, yeah. all that sort of stuff was largely created by John L. Sullivan and his immediate contemporaries, including very important guy, gentleman, Jim Corbett. John L. Sullivan was the heavyweight champion of the world by all definitions. He was the first million dollar sports contract in history. He did like what we called for baseball, barnstorming. He did 265 appearances in 365 days and was under contract for that, but it was a million dollar contract. Wow. So he was the first, and we're talking 1890s, okay? Right, and um, even after his prime, you know, he was important even after his prime as a boxer. He did exhibition boxing and uh, was on the vaudeville circuit. Sure, all those things. And yeah, right. regularly introduced, asked to run for office numbers of times, all those sort of things. Right. But what the biggest thing that the Irish did in boxing is they, they weren't really into the marquee of Queensbury rules, although they adopted large parts of them. But they felt that that kind of control would improve the public image of, of boxing and, and recognize it as a sport. Remember, many big cities, including Cleveland, banned public boxing. It was a prohibited activity. There were ordinances that prohibited it. In fact, I think when Johnny Kilbane first was fighting, he couldn't have fought in Cleveland in any kind of professional bout because it was prohibited in Cleveland. The boxing matches would take place outside of the city limits in uh, barns and things like that, warehouses. Yeah. Well, and even mm -hmm. the championship fight that Johnny fought in 1912 was held in this big, basically barn-type warehouse in suburban, what we now would consider suburban Los Angeles. It wasn't down at the Forum or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So what John L. Sullivan and Jim Corbett did, and I always like to remind people because I'm a Mayo man, that Jim Corbett was a born in Mayo guy. John mm -hmm. L. Sullivan was an Irish-American born in Massachusetts. I'm pretty sure Massachusetts. But Jim Corbett, who came along and unseated John L. Sullivan and was very, very um, pronounced in his dress and his class, he was known as Gentleman Jim Corbett. Well, the two of them are really the ones who made the sport of boxing into something that you could appreciate that you could ultimately legalize. And uh, Tom Sharkey is a guy of that era. He is one of the very, very few people who fought John L. Sullivan, fought Jim Corbett, and then fought the later guys, Jeffries. And he even actually was still around. He fought a, an exhibition with Tunney and Dempsey. I mean, he, he basically 
was still doing it a long time. He also was born in Ireland. He was born in Dundalk. And the connection to Cleveland and Johnny Kilbane is it's Tom Sharkey who's doing a, a demonstration of a barnstorm-type visit, although I don't think he got paid for the appearance at the LaSalle Club. Uh, he's at the LaSalle Club, which was the St. Malachy's Parish organization trying to get the guys off the streets and out of trouble. And that's when Johnny Kilbane sees his first boxing. He sees Tom Sharkey. So that's how Johnny Kilbane gets the boxing bug from this guy who's with white genuine evidence, evidence was present at the creation. Sharkey was one of these guys who helped build the sport and who dealt with the restrictions on it. And in, uh, there's another great Cleveland connection there. And that is that not only was he the boxer who came through that kind of inspired Johnny Kilbane, but he had one of the most prominent clubs in New York City. It was called Sharkey's after his name, obviously. How creative. <laughs> and you could not, because boxing and the gambling associated with boxing couldn't be done publicly at all, the way boxing continued was that you had private clubs and people would box each other inside the clubs. And so you couldn't prohibit a club from doing what its members wanted to do. And then to uh, see the good boxers, what they would do is they would give temporary membership to a great boxer who happened to be coming through town or coming up from Philadelphia or down from Boston and New York. And you called this temporary membership a stag, an expression stag night. So an Ohio painter, George Bellows, who ended up being part of the uh, very famous Ashcan school of really kind of the first genuine American painting uh, in the New York City area, he lives not too far from Sharkey's. And uh, he actually does this wonderful painting, Stagnated Sharkies, which is a very, very valued part of the collection of the modern uh, American art collection at the Cleveland Museum of Art. Right. And that's why you gave a talk at the Cleveland Museum that's of why Art I gave at a that talk time. The... We were standing in front of Stagnated Sharkies. And, uh, you know, many people have seen the painting, but don't really know that Sharkey was an actual person right. who owned this club. So he was a boxing promoter as well as a, a boxer, and promoters were a big part of how the, the sport took off yep. as well. Yep. And of course, again, like anything that's dancing on the edge of legality and illegality that has some gambling associated with it, not all the characters around boxing all the way back then, all the way up to our time, were all wonderfully church-going confessional people. They were... Uh, there was a, a wide collection, one of the more An famous. unsavory, unsavory element. Yeah, one of the more famous uh, incidents and scandals was the death of Bill Brennan, a guy who was a great boxer in, uh, and had actually fought both gentlemen Jim Corbett and had fought Sharkey and fought others. And he had his own similar club in Chicago, and he came to New York and was actually trying to set up a club. And uh, whatever unsavory element he had aligned with, he picked the wrong one. He ended up being killed in an alley outside his proposed new club in New York City. New York City. As far as I know, he was a, a Mayo Brennan as well. Okay. He was a Mayo a certain, guy. A certain Mayo dimension here that we're following. His fame was, he was probably the greatest knockout artist from Chicago. He probably had more knockouts to win fights in that time. We're, again, we're talking early 20th century. But the key thing about these clubs is that they preserved the game in a way 
that let people prosper and, and succeed while the legitimization that Sullivan and Corbett were working on was happening and more, you know, legitimate cleaning up of the sport, if you will. When I was first aware of what lawyers did and how city government worked, I was very surprised to find out that the Cleveland Boxing Commission was an important appointment by the mayor who we appointed to the Cleveland Boxing Commission. And that was a way of both keeping boxing clean and it was an important political element for the mayor and the councilman who supported the mayor and things like that. So as a very young person, I remember saying, wow, there's no Cleveland Baseball Commission. There's no Cleveland Football Commission. Why is there a Cleveland Boxing Commission? Well, again, this coming from the bar room and the gamblers to the public and people like Johnny Kilbane were the reason the game got legitimated. He was a, a not uncolorful fellow, but an honest guy and, and a guy who cared about the community and who cared about the sport being clean and was a referee himself for years after his own boxing ended. So one of the great Irish contributions to American culture is this legitimizing and cleaning up of the sport of boxing. And Cleveland was a big, big part of that. And Johnny Kilbane was part of it. And of course, the other aspect of it is, like any other sport, there are elements to the very young and to the people who want to enter the sport. And Right. And you mentioned earlier the LaSalle Club as an important entry for Johnny Kilbane. It was a club organized by St. Malachy Parish. Children weren't required to go to eight years of grade school in the in the late 1890s and early 1900s, and some had to leave school earlier to work. But the LaSalle Club was open to boys in the parish, whether they were attending school or not. That was an important part of it to help give them something to do and, and the familiar, keep them off the streets. And for Johnny Kilbane, that had eventually professional ramifications his whole life. But for many others, it was just an activity that you did as a young person. And that's when you started, I think, thinking about how that connected with important formative experiences of your own youth. And I think you were going there with... Yeah. Well, think about what was happening. So you had the LaSalle Club, and it sort of segues into the old Angle Gym, uh, right. which becomes the place there in, in the Irish neighborhood of, uh, on the near west side that people learn to box. So the LaSalle Club... I don't know its actual termination date or anything like that, but it's in, in the boxing area anyway. It had a legitimate successor in the old Angle Gym. And again, one of those things that people don't know about, about Cleveland, Cleveland has the oldest continuing Golden Gloves organization in the United States. It's 92 years old this year. So in the era of Johnny's reign, Golden Gloves had started in Cleveland. Golden Gloves was the idea of how to train young boxers. It was a very significant national organization. It started in Chicago. And the big deal about the Golden Gloves was its inclusiveness. And uh, one of the things about, I always talk about the Johnny Kilbane fight. He beat the previous longest serving champ in Champion. any weight class. And he happened to be a Jewish boxer. Uh, when I surprised the Irish in New York City by telling them that when Johnny Kilbane won his title, there were 15,000 professional Jewish boxers in the United States. 
that number was probably equivalent to how many Irish boxes people had their card, you know, authority to box for money, that sort of thing. And obviously the Poles and the Italians and other immigrant groups had their things as well. But it was boxing was a way of both letting off steam, obviously. And that was one of the reasons it was promoted by neighborhood organizers of the day, if you will. But it also was was a, a community thing. And again, going back, that's 92 years ago as Golden Gloves, the Catholic Youth Organization, an American Catholic club for the idea of giving youth the opportunity to participate in athletics, it was founded 84 years ago, also in Chicago. Uh, I think Golden Gloves started in Chicago. I may be wrong on that part, but at least the CYO started in Chicago. And the Catholic Youth Organization of the Cleveland Diocese was one of its first affiliated. And basically in 1936 or 37, the Cleveland uh, Catholic Youth Organization got started. And boxing's part of that from the very beginning. And so you've got basically an effort to influence the community and, the, and particularly the Catholic immigrant community by having, giving youth something to do. And, and boxing is a big part of it because it's a major sport. Did your dad and your uncles box when they were younger? No. In fact, if they did, they didn't do it very long. It's nothing mm -hmm. I ever heard them talk about much. I think my dad said he might have done a couple. But, of course, in Cleveland, from the lawyers in my generation, I'm now 70, but people know the recent Justice Francis Sweeney, who was both a trial court judge in, in Cleveland and in Cuyahoga County and then was on the Ohio Supreme Court, and his older brother, Michael Sweeney, ran for Congress a couple times and was a big part of Jim Stanton's, uh, Congressman Jim Stanton's crew and, and worked for Jim the whole time Jim was in Congress. They were both very, very experienced boxers. In fact, Mike Sweeney during the war, I think he fought for the All-Army Championship. Uh, well, you have to check with the Sweeney's to be sure on that, but he was very, very prominent. If you knew either one of them, you could tell they were boxies. You could tell them at some point they were heavyweight boxers because they had that that kind of blocked jaw and stern disposition. And, and they were both wonderfully gentle and hospitable people. But if somebody told you they were great boxers, you wouldn't be surprised looking at them. But the best way I can explain to how big boxing was is that until after World War II, just to give you an example, more boys boxed at St. Ignatius High School, then played football at St. Ignatius High School. <laughs> and I'm sure that's reversed today, right? <laughs> I don't know of any boxers at Ignatius today. I mean, there probably are some, but I wrestling. don't certainly not. Right. There's some wrestling. But even right. Ignatius didn't get into wrestling until well after I graduated. So uh, St. Ed's was founded during that period after World War II. And so it never really had any kind of boxing a tradition at St. Ed's that I know of, but as the other West Side School, as we like to say, and Ignatius, um, we all know in football and basketball. And again, remembering basketball was virtually a new sport in the time that Johnny Kilbane is, is world champion. So that two of the biggest sports now, football and basketball, were were really were not organized. At were that not time, organized. Right? Weren't there, mm -hmm. and and uh, it, you know, kind of really significant, but the role that boxing played in building the CYO was critical. I mean, if you go back again, one of the other great things out of the CYO organization when they founded in Chicago diocese and then was adopted here was the whole idea of inclusiveness. 
there were many more African-American Catholics in Chicago than there were in Cleveland, a function of when the Black communities developed in their respective cities, largely. But the CYO in Chicago was very significant in its principles and enunciation and practice of including everybody. And when the CYO came to Cleveland in 36, 37, that also has been a very big deal. And in fact, the first time I met any young black men outside of being with my dad at a campaign thing or something was in CYO. The inner city parishes all had teams and football and basketball and earliest days boxing as well. I mentioned earlier my very short career. I had one fight. I hit the kid hard enough that he fell down. I don't know for sure he was knocked out. I was sure I killed him and I was not happy and I didn't want to ever box again. So <laughs> as I remember, he was from St. James Parish in Lakewood but, uh, and another <laughs> Irish kid, but he was skinnier than me. And it's hard to imagine now, but I was a skinny guy back then. So uh, that was something. But K.O. K.O. Corgan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nobody, nobody ever really said that. But um, obviously, my appreciation for the CYO is that one of the first full-time priests assigned to help develop the Catholic Youth Organization, CYO in the Cleveland Diocese, was Monsignor Tom Corrigan, who more people may know, he was a longtime pastor of St. Charles, but he was ordained a priest in uh, 45. He's ordained basically during the war. And let's be clear for a second, he's your uncle. My right. uncle, my dad's older right. brother, right? Monsignor Thomas C. Corrigan. Mm -hmm. So he's ordained during the war, and his two buddies, two of his biggest buddies, are a guy by the name of Paul Hallinan and a guy by the name of Richard, Richard Whalen. And they become three of the youngest American priests ever made monsignors by the Pope. Hallinan's thing is he's basically... He's a diocesan priest, but not so much assigned to parishes because he's building the Newman movement. And he's in charge at uh, Case Institute Technology and Western Reserve University in building the Newman movement there. And then he becomes a national leader in building the Newman movement. And that's an organization um, devoted to having a Catholic presence on non on public school or, or, or private school, non-Catholic campuses. And, yeah, at the university level. At the university level. And then right. uh, Father Tom, Monsignor Corrigan, my uncle, was doing the same sort of thing nationally with CYO. So the stuff we were doing was successful here, and so then it would be exported and ideas about how to do things. What were some of those things, Tom? What were some of those successful things he was doing? Monsignor Corrigan was interested in track. And so they started doing uh, track type competitions. So the parishes would actually have, you know, sprint teams and hurdles. And the field events were always a little bit, you didn't see people shot putting too much or things like that in, in, in the early days. But the range of sports that CYO had included in the early days, boxing, and then track was one of the track and field was one of the things that, that uh, Monsignor Corrigan put in. But, you know, by the late 50s, as I'm, I'm in grade school, the reality is that virtually every parish in the diocese that could had a football team, a basketball team. They might have some boxers. They might have some track. And just as importantly, they were providing those sports for the first time to girls so that 
there would be um, women's basketball and women's track and stuff. Mm-hmm. There wasn't women's football. I will admit that. Uh, but, and there wasn't women's boxing either at the CYO that I know of, but, mm-hmm. and then if you think about it, and this is connects back to the Irish American archive society, one of our early walks of life winners was a guy by the name of Michael J. Cleary that many people might know. And the first time I heard his name, the name Cleary wasn't associated with him. It was the, the best speed skaters because there was CYO speed skating the best speed skaters in my part of the West side were the Cleary brothers. And they were very, very good. And and there were some women speed skaters as well who were very good. And they would go to regional and sometimes national competitions in speed skating. And speed skating, to be clear, the parishes wouldn't have their own rinks. Um, They would take advantage of municipal rinks. Right. And uh, for West siders. It was Halloran or Winterhurst. Yeah, Halloran over on south of Lorraine a little bit there uh, near Philip and James Parish, if you will. So in a sense, boxing helped formulate the structure for some of the other organizations and sports that occurred. And the the link with Michael J. Cleary, I love to say, he kind of invented, uh, after he was an Ignatius grad, he invented more or less the idea of sports information director and athletic director and ended up being the longest serving president of the national organization of college and university athletic directors. directors. But I found out a really great, interesting fact about him. The first live sporting event televised in Cleveland was a seventh and eighth grade boxing term. And Michael J. Cleary was in that broadcast. He was a boxer. And then he boxed a little bit at Ignatius when he got there. He graduated from St. Ignatius in 52. The first televised sporting event was a seventh and eighth grade. It was a youth boxing event. That was the first televised, live televised sporting (laughs) event in Cleveland. That you know, there there may have been an Indians game or or a a Rams game, but I don't think those were televised. You got to remember, there was not good technique for that. Was easier to televise a boxing ring than televise a. Mm, you could have a, a camera field. in one position, and you could uh, be close enough to see the right. action, etc. But you'd, for the if you had the single camera for a baseball or football field, it wasn't going to work out too well. <laughs> right, and then you got to remember because of greats like Jesse Owens and Harrison Dillard, Cleveland area was considered a pretty significant place for track and field, and since the parishes were doing their CYO was doing some track and those sort of things. Uh, the Knights of Columbus got together with CYO and created basically a fundraiser, but was a track and field tournament. That famous Knights of Columbus track meet was held annually throughout. I think it started in the forties, late forties, I think after the war and was still running well into the sixties and seventies. Mm-hmm. I remember our dad taking us to the KFC track meet down in the old arena, right? Right. And you'd see the the high school guys and gals run off against each other and compete against each other. And then there'd be, in effect, adult and college division, if you will. So you could see really good runners and really good pole vaulters. Right. These were Olympic level people. The guy who was trying to break the four minute mile in uh, my younger years was there. And um, the Fosbury flop. We were witnesses to the early um, invention of the Fosbury right. flop. High jumping, yeah. Right. Right. 
so again, if you think about it, then you've got the Irish American guys, John L. Sullivan and gentleman Jim Corbett, trying to professionalize and improve the sport of boxing, which is a high attendance sport. It's a high gambled sport. So there's risks of that as well. Obviously, horse racing is a gambling sport. So there always were issues about that. And there were there were racing commissions, but those tended to be gubernatorial and statewide organizations rather than regional or, or local. So you have the Irish Americans helping to professionalize and improve a very big attendance sport that spills over into promoting that sort of structures and things in local organizations. Ultimately, the Catholic diocese throughout the country come up with the Catholic youth organization idea to kind of have some organized youth athletics. And the Irish, and particularly the Irish in Cleveland, are a big part of this. And of course, Johnny Kilbane, he never stopped refereeing. I think he refereed well into Within a year or two of his death, he still refereed a boxing match. He'd go to Golden Gloves. He'd right, be I was the, just going to emphasize that um, not only would he referee at professional fights, but he was very active in encouraging the Golden Glove movement. And yeah, right. And and Cleveland, think about it. Cleveland is the oldest Golden Gloves organization in the United States. It's been in continuous existence, and it has sent boxers to the regionals and nationals for virtually every year of those 92 years. I mean, that's, that's a real Cleveland accomplishment. And, you know, if you go to the, the current board of the current Golden Gloves in Cleveland, you'll see a Gallagher name on there. You know, there's still Irish involved in boxing. And, and as you know, there's been some pretty important uh, international heavyweights and middleweight guys who've been Irish in the recent sports era. But, uh, I like to think that Johnny Kilbane was both a forerunner for uh, lots of things in Cleveland, but his being part of what boxing did for sports uh, was a pretty significant thing. And again, it's hard in now 110 years after Johnny Kilbane to think of the impact that his winning had on the town. What we think of as the modern St. Patrick's Day Parade probably wouldn't have happened without the kind of spontaneous parade that occurred when he came back to Cleveland after winning the championship back in, you know. Arriving in Cleveland on St. Patrick's Day, huge crowd mobbing the then railroad depot that was down by basically West 6th and West 9th Street, not our current terminal tower or Union Station, but an earlier one. And our then-Mayor Newton D. Baker <laughs> breaking his ban on Sunday activities, frivolous Sunday activities um, in attendance, right? Well, and then you could actually do public boxing in Cleveland then, too, that they mm-hmm. changed the ordinances. The idea mm-hmm. that there'd be a Cleveland world champ and he wouldn't be able to fight in his hometown was mm-hmm. kind of wrong. So that changed as well. So those are you know pretty significant things. And obviously, Johnny was a very important initiator. But if you go through, you can find in every decade a major player. And as I said, it spilled over. Michael J. Cleary is in any long-term view of Cleveland and sports, particularly collegiate sports. We'll look at Michael J. Cleary and his role in doing the same sort of things, organizing and improving the quality of what became what is now modern collegiate sports. Quite frankly, Cleary's organization is part of what kept the NCAA from going astray 
any number of occasions over the last 50 years. So that's, that's another thing to think about. But I'm just very, very proud of being Irish and being an Irish-American from Cleveland and boxing and its spillover effects, I think, have been an important part of, of that development and part of reason for my pride. And I still follow what happens in the Golden Gloves every year. And, and I don't know if you're aware, there was a Cleveland woman boxer named McLean who is repeated now twice as a national champ in her weight class. So uh, Cleveland's still pretty big. I, she's an African-American. I don't think she's an Irish McLean in any direct sense that we think of today, but who knows? <laughs> um, you're also... I think there's some pride in the fact that we all know you as the son of Judge John V. Corgan, but you're also the nephew of Monsignor Tom Corgan, right. uh, who has no heirs, of course, as a priest, we hope, right? right? right. <laughs> um, and so that's a source of pride. Right. And, and uh, if you think about it, we could do a whole, uh, we did a wonderful book on the parade. We could do a whole book on Irish athletes from Cleveland, Irish-American athletes from Cleveland. We'd have some pretty big, some of them came here like Jim Hegan, but Mike Hegan came back as a broadcaster. <laughs> and uh, any number of people who played for the Speaking Indians. Speaking of broadcasters, we've got your own brother, Jack, right. heir to the Right, and he family. knows even more than I do about some of the early CYO days, the days because it's just that they're 60 years ago now, so we seem early. But he was an accomplished CYO athlete as opposed to me. I was not an accomplished CYO athlete. <laughs> um, Jack Oregon, who was um, the voice of the now Cleveland Guardians for many years, and now he's with the Colorado Rockies. Right. right? He did the Indians for 17 years on television here with WUAB, and now he's in his uh, 18th or 19th season doing the Colorado Rockies on, on radio. The way to explain it is he has the Tom Hamilton job there. So he does all 162 games. He also did um, announcing for the Cavaliers, too. He did the Cavaliers and the, and the Force. And, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and you played a role in helping him out that is little known, I think. Can you tell us about Basically, Jack was finishing up his collegiate football career and going to grad school in broadcasting at the time that cable television was coming along. And uh, his first job in broadcasting was in Youngstown, and then he was in Richmond. And I don't know if anybody remembers, Ted Stepien, the beginning of the end of Ted Stepien was when he made a sweetheart deal, sweetheart for Gabe Paul and the Indians at the time, to pay them a lot of money to take the games that the TV station wasn't, that WAB wasn't doing. He wanted the other games to run cable. And he hired Bob Feller, Joe Castiglione, who had been a Channel 8 sportscaster, and my brother to do the uh, television, the cable broadcast to the Indians. It lasted all of about three weeks. And uh, the result was Jack was looking to do some other work. And with friends and contacts he made, we were able to, uh, there was a little outfit out of Bristol, Connecticut. Uh, which you may have heard of, it became ESPN. And uh, Jack could get $125 for everything they ran if we shipped them a, a good videotape and good audio. So for Jack's early days, I had the pleasure sometimes of holding the camera or holding the mic as we went into a locker room or went to the 
pits at the Cleveland 500 auto race. Or I never went out. He went out and actually covered the Prescott Ball and Turbine Horse Classic, the show jumping and all those things. But um, So you went to sporting events and interviewed people right. after the after the event right, for, and you were the you were the technical crew for yeah it. i was yeah mostly just a tripod i don't i wasn't very experienced <laughs> at any part of it but uh he uh that's how he survived until he started doing he, he first did the force and then the calves and then the indians and uh he he's one of the rare people that's done all three of those sports on cleveland television so but he owes it all to you no Tom. he doesn't <laughs> <laughs> i know better than that but uh, yeah, the uh, the great part is, and if you go through, there's great Irish sports writers in Cleveland. There are any number of producers and investors, and in right, and some of the earliest sports casting on radio was done by people with of Irish heritage, Jack Graney. Right. Although he's not, we can't call him Irish American because he was born in Canada. But um, right. <laughs> you know, Tom Manning. Tom Manning is next. Yep. And then your brother. And, and Jim, uh, Mike Hegan. And Mike Hegan, right. And there were, you know, Jack actually has a wonderful speech. He does. They did for uh, a program out at the uh, Maltz uh, Museum of Jewish Heritage about the uh, Irish and umpires. And in early baseball, not unlike early boxing, brawls and drinking and gambling had an effect sometimes on interfering with the game. And so early umpires were half experts in the sport calling balls and strikes and half bouncers some of them actually that was their other job they were bouncers somewhere and then they were also umpires and uh, jack has a wonderful uh, collection of stories about those guys and, and uh, again you know when the irish came to america they joined full tilt and uh, uh, one of the things that and, and margaret you know this because you work with some of the more uh, recent efforts to revive the Irish sports, the Gaelic games in Cleveland. But when I was young, there wasn't much of that around at all. Most of the people who came to this country from Ireland in the later half of the 19th and early part of the 20th century, they jumped right into American sports. And that's where most of them participated because that's where the opportunities were. Well, thanks for this uh, tour of the impact of the Irish on these sports, especially in Cleveland. And we draw a straight line from Johnny Kilbane to young Tom Corrigan, <laughs> K.O. Corrigan, <laughs> in the seventh and eighth grade, <laughs> and Mike Cleary. Well, and, yeah, that's, the, yeah the, I don't think my contribution to sports is worth very much, but I, I'm happy to be part of helping the Irish American Archive Society preserve the history of it. As we know, you're uh, very very well-versed in many different topics. And I certainly thought that we would be talking about politics or judges or things like that. But um, I'm glad we uh, thought of this topic because uh, it's a little eliminated. And as a nephew of your Monsignor uncle, I think it's important to bring out his role in the development of CYO here in Cleveland. So thanks for sharing that with us, Tom. And we will get you back on another time to talk about judges and it's all right. The full Irish American experience. Irish in the state house right. and things like right. that. So thanks a lot, Tom, for sharing your knowledge with us. I appreciate it very much. Thank you, Margaret. See you soon. Thanks for joining Finding Home, the Irish American Archive Society's podcast series about the history of the Irish in Cleveland. Find more on the IAAS website at irisharchives.org. 
The Irish American Archive Society is a non-profit organization whose mission is to research, present, and preserve information about the history of the Irish in Cleveland. Thank you for listening.